This is the God in All Things podcast, rooted in Ignatian spirituality and seeking the presence of God in the everyday. In lieu of a normal podcast, I'd like to share with you audio from a workshop I gave last month titled Incomprehensible Mercy. The talk was given at Ministry Days, a conference in the Diocese of Sacramento. It offers a theology of mercy and some practical ideas for those of us who can find performing mercy exhausting. You'll hear a break in the audio a few times when I ask participants to share their thoughts on a particular question I pose as their responses have been cut for time and privacy. You can see the video version of my talk at godinallthings.com, along with my visual presentation. And also there you can download the handout given to the participants that illustrates the theology of mercy I present. And just a note, at the end of the talk, I say that the year of mercy will be ending in two years. Obviously, I meant to say two months. So, enjoy. Now, when we talk about mercy from a Christian perspective, you know, we're likely talking about uh, God as being merciful, or at least God compelling us to live mercy in, in our lives, uh, to be merciful. So I think it's a, the important question to first ask ourselves is, what is your image of God? We grow up with different images of how we imagine God, maybe um, influenced by our parents, maybe if we went to Catholic school, there was some sort of influence there. The church certainly influenced our image. Um, and some perhaps imagine God as one who's pressing buttons, you know, doling out rewards or punishments on people. Um, others might uh, consider the wrathful images of God that we sometimes find in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, a God who's carefully tracking your sins and uh, uh, quick to, uh, to send you to the fires of hell. So maybe, you know, maybe not as much of a merciful image of, of God. Um, I remember that my, um, my mother growing up always told me, you know, God's always watching you. God is uh, keeping marks, uh, black marks of your sin in his book, you know. And uh, so there was sort of a fear of God as sort of a bookkeeper. That was my image of God, you know, growing up. Um, and I think these images are a kind of pop God image that persists in our popular culture. And I think many people resist religion because of such images like these. They can't seem to reconcile the, their own desire for mercy and forgiveness with a God who's you know, quick to condemn or send to hell. Uh, and I think that just keeps people away. So maybe we can just pause for a moment and um, turn to someone near you, or actually maybe since we're such a small group, we could just have a conversation ourselves. I'm curious, what is your image of God? Uh, what image of God did you grow up with? Um, has that changed over time? How do you perceive God? Yeah, I think a lot of us, sadly, this is the pop god, this popular culture understanding of God is sort of based in fear, right? Fear of hell, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, when we when we explore a, any sort of theology of God, I think what's important to do is that we, before we do so, we need to just set those images aside for a minute, because um, if we're going to learn something new about God. We're not going to be open to that if we're just hanging on to these images that are very ingrained in, in us. Um, William Berry, who's a Jesuit, he says that all the Gospels describe the disciples 
as men who did not begin their relationship with Jesus with a preconceived picture of him that was later substantiated. So in other words, the disciples had to get to know Jesus on their own, right? They didn't already come with an image of what he was supposed to be like. Um, they had to get to know him on, on their own. So I think the more important question to ask is, what is our own experience with God? Right? So how has that image changed? Changed. You talked about your transformation. Uh, you had to get to know God on, on your own, right? Um, no one can... No one can adequately tell you who God is for you. You have to get to have that personal relationship. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, where did we get uh, our, these images? How did they change? Um, and even the images we have now, can we put that aside for a minute as we uh, explore God in perhaps a new way? Uh, I think it is often helpful to look at the saints to see what was their own experience of God. So uh, let's consider these two saints sort of as a springboard for our understanding of mercy. St. Paul and St. Ignatius, St. Ignatius who founded the Jesuits. Um, St. Paul was a Pharisee, um, persecuting Christians, calling for their deaths. Yet, in that fall-off-the-horse moment, he encountered a merciful Christ um, who transformed him into a lifelong apostle who was important for spreading Christianity around the world. Uh, Saint Ignatius, he was a prideful sinner. He was obsessed with his status as a soldier. Um, and it wasn't until an injury, a cannonball to the knee, that forced him to uh, encounter a God who, was, um, who remained merciful despite his sin. Uh, he actually writes that despite his sin, the angels and saints keep praying for him, and the earth does not swallow him up. Despite his sin, right? He's still he's still alive. He's still blessed. Um, and so, both Saint Paul and Saint Ignatius's openness to God's mercy leads them to transformation. It, they were, their hearts were open to receive. I, I just love, um, Martha, that you had your own personal example, right? Your heart was open to receive God's mercy, and through that, the grace of God, you were transformed. Um, countless people, uh, even you, right? All of us, in some way, are here because God's mercy has transformed us. Um, Pope Francis offers one understanding of mercy that I think Ignatius would resonate with. He says, mercy, the bridge that connects God and man, opening our hearts to the hope of being loved forever despite our own sinfulness. Now, I, I think we, we really can't practically know God's love uh, until the incarnation, until God actually comes, comes to earth and sort of makes that concrete. Because if we just stick with those popular culture images of God, uh, then all we're going to see, no matter what, is that God is unforgiving. Um, and we'll be blinded to the reality of God's mercy. And so what about the image of God that Jesus presents us with? Does our image of God reconcile with the God that we discover through the incarnate Christ? Christ is patient, forgiving. He feeds the poor. He heals the sick. Is this the God of our popular imagination? 
And at the same time, we, we talk about God having infinite mercy. What does this mean? Um, our popular image of God is, you know, this God that's quick to condemn and send people to hell. Yet some theologians propose the idea, or propose the question, in the light of an infinite um, God of mercy, could hell be empty? We have an infinite God of mercy, perhaps there's no one in hell. It's, a, it's an interesting question to, to sort of grapple with. Uh, St. Pope John Paul II says that mercy in itself, as a perfection of the infinite God, is also infinite. Also infinite, therefore, and inexhaustible is the Father's readiness to receive the prodigal children who return to his home. Infinite and inexhaustible. So maybe if we just sit with that for a moment and, and pause again, what does that mean to you to, uh, that, that God is, has infinite mercy? Let's consider again St. Paul and St. Ignatius, right? They were sinners transformed only by that infinite grace and mercy of God. Um, and more specifically, it was Christ that was the source of their transformation. Uh, even, Saint, you know, we read about St. Paul having this very real encounter with Christ. Um, St. Ignatius had so much of a focus in all his writings of the importance of a personal relationship with Christ, that it was important to speak to Christ, speak to Jesus like a friend, like you'd speak uh, as a friend. Um, and that was what was critical about St. Ignatius. So if you're familiar at all with the spiritual exercises that he wrote, that all Jesuits go through and a lot of lay people go through in other um, orders, uh, the focus of the spiritual exercises is growing in your relationship with the person of Christ. Um, so it's, it's Christ that becomes the, the, the source of transformation, right? John 3.17 says, God did not send the Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So with Jesus, we, we have a departure from some of those um, preconceived images of a condemning and harsh God. So let's consider that question again. Jesus presents God as the father of the prodigal son, willing to extend mercy even for the darkest, worst sinner among us. Does that, does that challenge our preconceived uh, image of God? Does it challenge your image, my image? And this is why the Pope repeats in his writings time and time again that Christ is the face of God's mercy. We can see it, it's visible, and that's the theme of this conference, right? Merciful like the Father. Um, and so here Jesus is giving us this visible, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more, uh, visible mercy in the world. It's no longer this sort of abstract uh, concept. I'd also like to say that uh, infinite mercy also probably means incomprehensible mercy. Right? There's something of mystery that's uh, hard to fully grasp. Just like we can't fully grasp the concept of infinity or eternity, we can't fully understand that as humans. 
it's hard to imagine a God who has a capacity for infinite mercy. Um, there was a story a couple years ago about a mother forgiving her son's killer. And every so often we, we hear a story like that in the news. And it makes the news because it's, it's quite unusual. Um, that's hard to comprehend. That's hard. I mean, to forgive someone who murdered a loved one. I think most of us are not going to be quick to forgive. Um, that's, that's hard to grasp. But you know what? That, the woman's forgiveness, that's a reflection of God's mercy. Jesus forgiving uh, Peter, who betrayed him. That's hard to understand. Three times even, right? Um, you know, the, I gave this talk yesterday as well, and the, the, someone brought up the thought, um, could Jesus, could God have forgiven Judas? And he might have. Maybe. We don't we know. Don't know. <laughs> I'll ask God. Eventually, you know. Um, Jesus, uh, Judas betrayed Jesus, right? right? But Judas took his own life. He died in a place of non-repentance. Um, maybe God, maybe seeing God face to face at the end of his life, maybe he did have a heart of repentance. We don't know, but it's an interesting question. But it's hard to understand. Even Jesus forgiving the good, the good thief on the cross. It's hard for us to comprehend. Um, so, you know, we can start to learn a bit about God's mercy in bits and pieces, but the mystery of God means that our learning is endless. Sometimes we think of mystery as, oh, we can't, we don't know. We just don't know. It's a mystery. Well, you know, we throw our hands up. But I think mystery is probably more about that we can know, but our knowing, our learning doesn't end, right? Our spiritual life, our faith never ends with all those groups. Um, so what can we comprehend about God's mercy? Well, God's mercy was most, uh, most revealed in Jesus' actions. Feeding, healing, forgiving. We can comprehend that. We can see that. And so we're starting to see that Jesus does help give some insight into God's infinite mercy. Even if our human nature has trouble grasping the depth of that mercy. And Christ is the fulfillment of the God we find in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, Pope Francis, in his World Mission Day message this year, uses feminine maternal images for God's mercy, calling, calling us children of God, whom she will always love in every circumstance, regardless of what happens, because they are the fruit of her womb. He continues... This is also an essential aspect of the love that God has for all his children, whom he created and whom he wants to raise and educate. In the face of their weakness and infidelity, his heart is overcome with compassion. And the Old Testament often exemplifies God as a, uh, a parent uh, being merciful to a child. And we even see, right, over and over, God continues to make new covenants with humanity despite humanity's repeated sin and, and infidelity and failings. And this is what I teach my students. Uh, I said, look at this pattern. You know, 
humans are stupid. Humans are dumb. We were always failing and, and sinning and turning away from God. But look, God is faithful. God makes good. God makes a new covenant. God is faithful. And then we're faithful for a while, and then we fall again, right? But then God's still there and, and making new covenants. So there's this pattern, this cycle that we see um, not only in the Old Testament, but I think even in our own lives, that God continues to remain faithful and merciful despite us not remaining faithful all the time. Um, just a, a little moment I was uh, sharing with Sarah the other day. I was teaching my teaching some international students in my school about the story of Joseph and his brothers and how the brothers do an awful thing and they sell Joseph into slavery. Despite that, God is merciful to Joseph puts him in, um, in positions of responsibility, and then eventually Joseph predicts that there's going to be this famine, so he stores up food and saves countless lives. And at the end, when his brothers come and they're repentant and everything, Joseph is amazingly forgiven and basically says, God has made good out of something that's bad. Right? God has taken this bad situation and brought good out of it and saved lives. And as I was sharing the story and teaching my students, I began tearing up. I was just moved by God's mercy that people can do awful things. Right? We can be so uh, foolish, but God can make good out of it. Um, yeah. So we see... Um, we see the fulfillment of this uh, in Jesus, whom Pope Francis calls the face of God's mercy. Jesus is the visible face of mercy, something we can comprehend, right? Mercy incarnate. Jesus is mercy in the flesh. Um, and so the incarnation becomes the concrete starting point for a Christian theology of mercy. Now, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus repeats this phrase, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so here we see in Matthew chapter 9, here Jesus is eating, uh, sharing a meal with sinners, tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees come along, and they say, do you know who you're eating with? You're, you're, you're associating yourself with sinners. What do you think you're doing? And Jesus says, those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. Go and learn the meaning of the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And then a couple chapters later, in chapter 12, if you knew what this meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned these innocent men. So Jesus is actually uh, referencing, um, quoting Hosea, chapter 6. He's reminding the Pharisees that God prioritizes mercy and knowledge of God over acts of worship. All right, so Hosea says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Right? This is the, the ritual act of worship here. Um, and so Jesus is saying, it is the nature of God to prioritize mercy. And the word knowledge in Hosea is referring to uh, an intimate, personal knowledge, personal relationship with God. 
And he's calling out the Pharisees and saying that they're not modeling this. A little bit later in chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay tithes of mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier things of the law, judgment and mercy and fidelity. Mercy is weightier. It is a more weightier thing of the law than the, the ritual acts of worship and so on that the Pharisees become obsessed with. So, uh, so Jesus, Jesus embodies this essential nature of God who prioritizes mercy over legalism and sacrifice. In fact, while the Pharisees are focused on the action of the temple sacrifices or the allowed actions of the Sabbath laws, Jesus refocuses us to a different kind of action, the action of mercy. And we view Jesus' merciful action uh, throughout the gospel stories. Right? His, his miraculous healings, uh, forgiveness, and everything, they weren't just to show off, but they were to convey the reality that God was like this. God was a merciful God. God prioritized mercy. God was not about condemnation, but about compassion. Right? A lot of people tend to think that, oh, his, his, his miracles were just kind of showing, look, I'm God, you know, and everything. That's more about drawing attention to Jesus. Nothing Jesus did was for his own attention. It was to glorify God. And it was to show people who God was and what God was like. And in Matthew 25, this is where Jesus reinforces how important this compassion is in our own lives by presenting us with the corporal works of mercy, which are about showing uh, mercy by responding to the basic needs of others. Food, drink, clothing, shelter. In fact, this is the minimum this is the minimum for mercy. This is the basics that we should be doing, right? Um, and it's what Jesus lived out. Uh, Pope Francis says, What moved Jesus, it all read the hearts of those he encountered and responded to their deepest need. And Matthew 25 actually says that our very salvation hinges on how we do these things, how we care for the most vulnerable among us. Um, and, and the prophet Micah reminds, reminds us when Micah says, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. That's the minimum. Justice, humility, and mercy. Um, who here has either uh, seen the play or the movie or even read the book, Blame um, Around? Um, so in the play Les, Les Mis, um, it's very good. It shows the role of the corporal works of mercy in transforming lives. <laughs> so we have the, the main character, Jean Valjean. Uh, he's released from 19 years in prison, hard labor, for a petty crime. <laughs> and he's wandering about looking for shelter and looking for work. And a kind bishop takes him in one night. And in the lyrics of the song that the bishop sings, we can see how the bishop responded to his basic needs. The bishop says, Come in, sir, for you are weary. 
and the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you. There is bread to make you strong. There is a bed to rest till morning. Rest from pain. Rest from God. Mm-hmm. And so here you even see the bishop doing, performing the corporal works of mercy, drink, food, protection, shelter, come in. Um, it's, it's a beautiful story, and uh, you know, it was this moment of mercy that God used to transform uh, Jean Valjean, who later exercised his own mercy to others. So the story of Les Mis teaches that those who have received mercy practice mercy. And those, who, those who've known suffering can better minister to those who, who suffer. And so interestingly, the bishop in Les Mis remedies the story of the Good Samaritan where the priest walks right by the man in the street, ignoring him, right? In Les Mis, the priest, the bishop, uh, does show mercy into the man, uh, to the man on the street. The theologian John Sabrino says, the ideal total human being is represented as one who has seen someone else lying wounded in the ditch along the road, has reacted and has helped the victim in every way possible. For Jesus to be a human being is to react with mercy. This is who God is. And if we are the image of God, then we too are called to to react with mercy. Pope Francis offers another understanding of mercy. He says, mercy, the fundamental law that dwells in the heart of every person who looks sincerely into the eyes of his brothers and sisters on the path of life. Do we look into the eyes of uh, those who are in need or do we avoid averting our gaze? When I talk about mercy uh, to a lot of my students, um, often the cliche example that comes up are homeless people, right? Because it's, it's, it's who we often see, you know, in need on the street. Um, and when I ask the kids, you know, what are ways that you can show mercy, show love to homeless people? And the answer is, oh, you know, give them some money or give them some food. I said, what about looking them in the eye? What about making eye contact? What about smiling to at them or saying hello. It's not always about giving money, right? Um, How many of us, when we maybe see a homeless person, we we look away, we we avoid eye contact and just walk on? And so John Sabrino gives his own definition. uh, Mercy, he says, is a basic attitude toward the suffering of another whereby one reacts to eradicate that suffering for the sole reason that it exists, and in the conviction that, in this reaction, ought not be of another suffering, one's own being, without possibility of subterfuge, hangs in the balance. So, uh, for him, mercy is about alleviating suffering. Why? Because suffering is is not, suffering goes against God's original intent for the world. 
Let's get more practical though, right? This is hard. This is hard to live out. Trying to live out the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, um, giving attention to, to those in need, it can all be very exhausting. Um, and we experience this exhaustion at home, even with a spouse or children, family. Um, Sarah works long hours many times, many evenings. Pregnancy sometimes makes it diff more difficult for her. Um, so I often have to exercise mercy to her, taking care of things around the house, doing chores, preparing dinner, things like that. Um, and sometimes I have to sacrifice downtime so she can have rest uh, to show her mercy. And she does the same thing for me, you know. Um, but this exhaustion also happens in ministry as well. Um, Sarah and I often talk about the burden of ministry. We're often, as, as ministers, entrusted to help carry the burdens and brokenness of the people that we minister to. And both of us have had young people uh, come to us in their experiences of grief or abuse or, or brokenness, shame, that kind of thing. And it's hard. It's hard to carry that with someone. Um, but here's, here's the thing about mercy that's infinite and incomprehensible. It never runs out. Never runs out. Um, and that's not my own original idea. That is the Pope's. So, quote the Pope again. He says, God's mercy is forever. It never ends. never runs out. It never gives up when faced with closed doors. And it never tires. And we're called to share God's mercy with others. But we tire, right? We're, we, we're exhausted. We can get burnt out and fatigued. Um, and so for me, this is the hope. That um, God does the work of mercy with us. We're not doing it on our own. And so, again, through God's mercy, infinite mercy, uh, God can transform uh, our fatigue, turn our fatigue into the joy of the gospel. And this is, this is the key for me, where I, I find genuine joy in the ministry of mercy. It's joy-filling to love others. Um, so maybe we can pause just for another minute and ask ourselves, and, and if you'd like, you can share, where have you felt the fatigue, the exhaustion of mercy in your own There are three things that uh, might aid us when we feel the fatigue of mercy. I think the first is reflective prayer. Uh, allowing ourselves time to examine those moments where we've offered someone mercy, where we felt like we were carrying heavy burdens of others, those things can remind us that we're working alongside God in this ministry of mercy. And we should also reflect on the times where we have received mercy, right? Because that, that helps compel us and motivate us to continue in that and taking comfort in that. And so this time for reflective prayer um, should lead us to the second thing. We can get excited about mercy. Mercy, rooted in love and human dignity, is one of God's most awesome gifts, right? You've given examples of that. Um, and the fact that God uses us, uses us 
to show um, merciful love to the world is amazing. What a privilege. It kind of makes us superheroes of mercy, you know, for the world. Um, and yes, it, it can be exhausting, but you know, what a privilege to be partners with God in transforming lives through mercy, just like Christ did. Right? We're, if we're calling ourselves ministers, we're calling ourselves partners with God. We're doing, we're literally doing God's work, doing Christ's work, continuing Christ's work. And the third aid in our fatigue of mercy is that we, that we must be merciful to ourselves. We mustn't beat ourselves up or allow ourselves even to be overworked. And the words of Jesus that often resonate with me are, all you who are carrying heavy burdens, I will give you rest. And so if, if mercy is about meeting our basic needs, well then rest is a product of mercy. It's a basic need. Um, and so is, so is self-forgiveness. So is patience. Um, you know, the biggest lesson I've learned from ministry is that if I'm not caring for myself, I'm not going to be able to care for others. Um, and so self-care is, is critically important. Uh, if we want to fully, uh, if we want to fully do the work of mercy. On the sheets I gave you, um, there's a author, uh, Vanita Hampton Wright, offers a offers a beautiful personification of mercy. Uh, she wrote this piece for for National Catholic Reporter a couple of years ago, and it reminds us that mercy can be shown through small acts, and mercy can be seen also by its fruits. Um, so this, this on this handout is an excerpt. I'm going to start at the third paragraph, and I just want to read a little bit of it. The third paragraph. When mercy has been wronged, the offended one does not make it difficult for the offender to apologize or ask for, for forgiveness. In fact, mercy does not wait for the other's action, but forgives so quickly that the person needing forgiveness is freer to ask for it. Likewise, at work, at home, or in the classroom, mercy creates an atmosphere in which a person feels safe enough to admit his mistake or ask a question. And if mercy must correct someone, it pains her to do it, and she does so gently, without vindictive relish. Mercy makes a habit of giving others the benefit of the doubt. Mercy is not in the habit of sending deadly glares at people who are annoying. Mercy gives charitably, knowing that eventually someone will take advantage of this generosity. Mercy welcomes you, fully aware that this act may disrupt her own plans. You can read the rest on your own, but uh, I was struck very much by that last line, that mercy may disrupt plans, may disrupt our own plans. Um, I remember this, we live in the, so Sarah's the director of the Newman Center in Chico, we live in, in the apartment that's in the Newman Center, um, and so it's a church. So sometimes homeless people will come and you know, ring the bell or whatever, looking for help. And I remember one afternoon, uh, I made myself a cocktail and I was going to sit down and get some work done and do some writing and I had all these plans, you know, and I'd sit down and the doorbell rings. And I'm like, oh, okay, who, you know, and I peer uh, down the stairs to the front door 
and I see it's this homeless woman who, uh, who had come by in the past, and, uh, and we made eye contact. So I'm like, okay, all right. I have to go down and answer the door, and I open the door, and she asked for a glass of water, and uh, she just started sharing about her troubles and everything. And after a little while, I was feeling a little frustrated, you know, my cocktail was getting warm, and uh, I had all this work that I wanted to get done and everything. Uh, but, you know, then as I reflected, you know, and I, I later realized that she just wanted some water and someone to listen to her. That's all. It wasn't much to ask. Um, and so it disrupted, mercy disrupted my plans. But it's, it's, it's always worth it, you know. Um, it was fulfilling. It was, it was fulfilling. And it was, it was joy feeling. It did give me joy. You know, and I was grateful for that moment. Um, you know, if we think about the story of the Good Samaritan, right, the priest and the Levite who walked on past, and then you can't barely see, but they're down the road, um, they didn't want their plans to be disrupted, right? They ignored the man, they continued on, but neither did the Samaritan want his plans disrupted. I'm sure he had places to go and things to do, but the Samaritan chose mercy. He allowed mercy to disrupt his plans um, and to, to be with the Samaritan. And if you remember that quote from earlier where Pope Francis says that he calls mercy the fundamental law that dwells in the heart of every person who looks sincerely into the eyes of his brothers and sisters on the path. So the Samaritan, no doubt, gazed sincerely into the eyes of the man, uh, the injured man, the stranger on the road, and, and felt the tug of mercy on his heart to respond. And so Jesus' parable here acts as a perfect metaphor for mercy. Right? As we wander the path of life, we will be disrupted. And our salvation and righteousness hinges on whether or not we gaze in the eyes of the other and extend to them love and mercy. And St. Teresa of Calcutta famously said, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. So for the Samaritan and for Jesus, just who the stranger was didn't matter. Didn't matter his ethnicity, didn't matter his religion. Um, really, all that mattered was that he recognized that the stranger was a part of the human family, just as he was. And so we have to be aware of the ways that mercy knocks on our door, disrupts us, and calls us to act. And so I just want to conclude with some more thoughtful words from Pope Francis that speaks to this concreteness, uh, this concreteness of mercy in our lives. So the Pope says, as we can see in sacred scripture, mercy is a key word that indicates God's action toward us. He does not limit himself merely to affirming his love, but makes it visible and tangible. Love, after all, can never be just an abstraction. By its very nature, it indicates something concrete, intentions, attitudes,
attitudes and behaviors that are shown in daily living. Concrete, right? We have to get away from this idea of mercy as some ethereal concept that uh, God only offers to just a few who are righteous. God offers it to everyone, infinitely, endlessly, uh, concretely. Um, and this is incomprehensible uh, to us because we humans are not quick to show mercy. We're, we're quicker to throw stones. We're quicker to throw stones. Um, and we forget that our neighbors, the people that we minister to, strangers, those different than us, um, and even our enemies, are our sisters and brothers. I mentioned uh, St. Ignatius, who realized that despite his sin, he wasn't swallowed up by the earth. And at the end of his famous spiritual exercises, he offers a meditation on uh, God's love and how God's love is endlessly poured out onto us, upon us. Um, Sister, you used the metaphor of a fountain earlier. That's exactly the metaphor that Ignatius uses. God's love is this endless fountain, constantly pouring out this love, this mercy upon us. Um, and so Ignatius realized that as the Christ story teaches us, uh, sin is not the end of the story. There's resurrection. God's, that God's mercy is prioritized time and time again and concretely manifests itself in our lives. And so it's this truth that ought to compel us to practice mercy, to live mercy in our daily lives. And so just as Jesus was the incarnation of God's mercy that transformed us, we become an incarnation of God's mercy to transform the world. It's all incarnation. Um, and if you, you know, learn more about Ignatian spirituality, you'll see just how incarnational it is. It's about God in the here and now and how we make God present in the here and now. Um, Heaven is important, that's great, but we've got work to do here, right now. And so you'll see on that, on the sheet, you know, I sort of visually laid out the theology for you. Um, it's Christ, Christ models mercy for us, Christ lives mercy, Christ gives us that mercy and that love. We are transformed, and now it's our calling to model mercy and to share that mercy with others. Um, just make it a quick plug uh, of uh, something that I've created as uh, one of my resources that I that I have on my website called Loving Mercy, and it's a 17-part series, um, and it goes through the seven spiritual and the seven corporal works of mercy. Um, it offers a scripture passage, uh, some reflection questions, a contemporary call to mercy from an article or a blog about that particular work of mercy. And then is very nationing our response. How now are we called to practically live that out in our lives? These are great for personal prayer, even if you don't offer it for a group. Uh, parishes have used this um, for small groups, and they maybe it's a week at a time, um, or maybe you go through two each meeting time. Um, and small group can pray with it, pray with the passage, have a conversation, 
Um, and I came out with this at the beginning of the year of mercy, but you know what? Mercy is timeless. Even though the year of mercy is going to end in a couple of years, uh, that means absolutely nothing. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so that's it for me. Any other thoughts or, or questions or ideas? I love. Thank you for your sharing. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.